Well, my family and I have lived in Phoenix now for about five and a half years, and uh, we just bought a house uh, in April several months ago and kind of got settled in officially five years into this thing, and uh, we did the whole renting thing before that, and we had lots of time to really stew on five years to think about what do we want when we buy a house, and one thing that was uh, universal in our family, our kids to my wife, was we want grass. We dream big, Right? And uh, you know, if you're new to Phoenix, you, you may not think that's a big dream, but it is if you've lived in Phoenix for a while, because it's hard to grow grass in the desert, right? It's, it's a little bit hard to do. So, so we did. We bought a house with grass, but we're realizing it's hard. Like, we got grass in our front, we got grass in, in our back, and, and we talk about it like it's a daily mission of mine to see how can I get this grass to grow, and it's a daily conversation of mine. We, literally, we hung out with friends last night, uh, other homeowners with grass in their, uh, in their yard, in their front, in their back. And we talked about irrigation versus sprinklers. And it was very, like, riveting conversation. Okay? And we talked about just how hard it is and how much money it costs and the different strategies and ways to do it. And, and so experientially, I've learned over the last several months, it's hard to grow grass in the desert. right? And, but here's what I've also learned. It's also amazing when you do, right? See, I have three kids, and I have one son, and he loves to go out in the grass and play soccer. He loves to go out, go out in the grass and, and hit the baseball, and we throw the football together in, in the grass. And, and not just my son, my, my little girls, like when it's winter uh, in Phoenix, we go sit in the grass, and we have a picnic in the grass, and it's soft, and it's plush, and we love the grass. You see, here's the reality about grass and having a lawn in Phoenix. It is hard to grow, but when you have it, it's glorious. It's hard, but it's possible, right? And why tell you that? Today we're talking about marriage. <laughs> marriage, if we took a poll in here, all of you would say, whether you're married or not, marriage is hard, amen? If you are married, like, Personally, you know it's hard, right? If you have parents, and all of you do and, and did at one point, you know because of some of their divorce, it, it's hard. You know because of some of your friends' adultery, marriage is, is hard. And so we all know marriage is hard. Like We know that experientially. We know that as we look at, at facts. Uh, just in researching for this sermon, found a couple stats. The divorce rate now is nearly twice what it was in 1960. I thought this was even more interesting. Overall, 72% of American adults were married in 1960. Now we're down to about 50%. And so we all know, experientially, marriage is, is hard. The studies show us marriage is hard. But here's our goal today. Here's where we're heading today as we talk about love and marriage, is it's hard, but it's possible. It's hard, but man, when you see a marriage specifically centered on Christ, it is glorious. Everybody wins, not just the married couple, the kids, not just the kids, the neighbors. Our world wins when marriage wins. It's, it's hard, but it's, it's glorious. And so I want to look at some of the hardships, but I also want to look at the glory of it. And to do that, we're not going to look at our ideas for marriage. Right? Because when we think of marriage, we think of the divorce, we think of the adultery, we think of the hardship. I want to look at marriage and not look at those ideas. I want to look at God's idea. And God's idea is found in the beginning because, I don't know if you know this, God created marriage. Not America. 
Not, not a court. Not you or I. God created it, and we see it in the very beginning. God officiates the first wedding in Genesis chapter 2. And so we're going to go there. We just read it, Genesis chapter 2. Look at it again with me. If you take notes, our first point is this, purposeful partnership over mutual comfort. We're going to see that in verses 18 through 20, purposeful partnership over mutual comfort. Verse 18 says this. It says, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave, to, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, we are in the middle of creation in this passage. God has been creating things, and seven times he says, hey, this is good, this is good, this is good. And seven times he says that, and for the first time, he says, hey, wait, this is not good. Now, we're in Genesis 2. Genesis 3, sin shows up. So we're pre-sin, pre-fall, and God says, hey, these other things, they are good. This is not good. What is not good, God? Man shouldn't be alone. Now, if you, you look at it with me, you see man is technically not alone. He, he creates every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens. He, he has all these animals. But what you and I know is there's something different about watching a movie, like cuddling up on the couch and watching a movie with your dog. And there's something different about that versus cuddling up with your cutie, your babe, your spouse, and watching a movie with them. Amen? Right, there's a difference between an animal and a person, and so technically he's not alone. They're, like there's animals, God's there, but, but, but God says, hey, this is not good that you're alone. This is not good that you're without this other person that's meant to be a compliment to you, like somebody who's equal to you in value and worth, created an inherent dignity and value, but somebody who compliments you well, and, and there's a specific person for that, and we see God talk about that as a helper. Twice you see that word, right? And some of you are like, Tim, no, I definitely heard that word, and I do not like it. It's really close to this other word in the New Testament called submission, like helper, submission. I don't like that concept. Like, if God's looking for something good, he should have looked for something different. But God describes what man needs as a helper. So because I know we get hung up on this, I want to talk about two aspects of what this really means. Strength and serving. First, strength. That when God says helper, this is a person of, of strength. Right. We know that Genesis 1, he created women, inherent dignity, value. 1 Peter 3, he calls man and woman fellow heirs of the grace of life. Uh, we see even just a few verses later as he creates Eve, as he creates the woman, we see how he creates the woman. He takes a rib out of Adam, he takes something from his side, and he creates the woman. Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't take Adam's foot and create Eve so that she's less than. He doesn't create Adam's skull and create Eve so that she's above him. How does he create Eve? From his side. Equal. There's, there's strength. Even when we see the woman 
created. There's, there's strength. We see this word helper show up other times in the Bible, and it's not talking about a woman. It's not talking about a wife. It's talking about God. We see it several times in the Psalms, Psalm 33, Psalm 70, Psalm 115. God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, almighty, all-powerful God who could create a storm and shut it down with the power of his word. We see God, all-powerful, strong God, helper. We see Proverbs 31, an example of a woman who has strength as a helper. We see her described as someone who is buying fields and planting vineyards. It says this specifically, she sets about her work vigorously. We see a strength in the example of a godly woman, a helper. We also just think about this. We see it in just the nature of a helper. What what does a helper do? Help someone else. A helper helps someone else who needs help. Who needs help in this passage? The man, right? We think about, well, the help, like the man is the leader. The man is the strong one, the valiant one, the, the warrior. And the woman's the helper. Like we, in our intonation, we say it that way. We describe it that way. Like we pit it as like the man is, is strong, but the woman's the helper. God says, hey, there's all these good things in creation. Here's what's not good. Like you need somebody else. You need some help. Amen, men? This, this is not meant to be a, a, a point of weakness. This is a point of strength that the man has some weaknesses. He needs some help. And so he brings a helper. So this term is meant to be a term of strength. It's also meant to be a term of serving. We see in Genesis 1 and 2, man is called to cultivate, to keep, to be fruitful, to multiply, to have dominion over the earth. That man is given a mission, and he needs help with that. And he does lead out in that. Ephesians 5 tells us that, that the man is to, to lead his wife, to love, to initiate. But it's servant leadership. Right? How is a man called to lead his wife? To lay his life down. That the man, as he leads in this, this mission, be fruitful and multiply, keep, cultivate the garden, all of those things, it's meant to be an act of, of service. And he needs someone to come alongside him to serve with him. That the mission is too great to do on its own. He needs help because we're stronger together than we are apart. That one person has their time, their talent, their treasure. Adam had that. And it wasn't enough. Not to accomplish the mission that God gave him. He needed someone else to help him serve. We see that in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. It says, one may be overpowered, but two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. And we see the design is for, hey, two people to come alongside one another and serve. It's a position of strength to be a helper, and together there is a strong unit to help the world, to cultivate, to keep dominion over the world. This is God's design for marriage. This is God's design for the woman, but for the marriage unit as a whole. And the reality is there's a disparity between this concept of marriage and help and the way our culture views marriage, right? That in the Bible you see, hey, find a helper helper, because you're on a mission that's bigger than you. In our culture we see, find a soulmate who completes you. The mission is you, Jerry Maguire. You complete me. Check it off the list, mission accomplished, right? 
Everything's complete because why? You complete me. The Bible says, hey, pair two people together to complete a mission that's bigger than themselves. They come together to do that. They can't do it on their own. Culture says the mission is me. You complete me. I talk to single people all the time who they describe what they're looking for in a spouse, and they'll say things like, I just want someone who makes me happy. Uh, what does that look like? What kind of person do you want? Like, and they have a list, usually. And maybe it's on Match.com or their uh, Bumble profile, but they have a list, right? And it's like, I'm looking for somebody who's adventurous. I'm looking for somebody who uh, likes to laugh. And I'm looking for somebody who takes, like, certain things serious but doesn't take themselves too serious. And you start to realize, like, you're talking about, like, a movie, like an actor, like Brad Pitt, who's not real, right? And you start to realize you're looking for somebody who completes you, not who, somebody who can help you complete the mission God has for you. And there's a disparity between our culture and the Bible, Tim Keller, a uh, professor, or pastor rather, uh, author, says it this way, that marriage used to be a public institution for the common good, and now it's a private arrangement for the satisfaction of the individuals. That marriage used to be an institution for the common good, and now it's become a private matter. Where you complete me, you satisfy me, I satisfy you. We see it when people get divorced. I'm no longer enough for you. Okay, I see. I'm no, I'm no longer enough. You had to go outside. And it's all about face-to-face and never about beyond anything that, than that. If you think about it, this is why in our wedding vows, the majority of time we are, we're face-to-face. And we look that other person in the eye and we commit to them. But there's a certain point where we move from face-to-face to looking out, right? How does every wedding end? They present you as a couple and you face the audience, you face the world and you lock hands together, you lock arms together to go about a mission that you're helper to one another, to go complete something that's bigger than you. At some point, you leave the face-to-face and you go out into the world. Now, what's the problem with our culture's view of marriage? What's the problem with only being face-to-face, you complete me, you satisfy me? Eventually, if that's your mission, it will crush you, and it will crush the other person. We see this all the time. I saw it in my marriage early on. Our first few years of marriage were really hard because we did what we, I think we read in books and blogs and talked to other people like, hey, your first few years of marriage, hey, just cut out everything else in life. It just needs to be about you and them, right? And so, hey, stop serving as much in the church and stop doing all these things with your friends and and everything like that. Your parents, like holidays, don't go to their thing. Like start your own tradition. And it just needs to be about you and your spouse those first few years of marriage. And we always kind of had that in the back of our mind. And so just inevitably over time, we began to look for you to fulfill me face to face. And what's wrong with that? And my wife is amazing, but she's a sinner. You don't have to be convinced. I'm a sinner. So two sinners, face-to-face only, complete me, fulfill me. We fail me. We fail one another. We crush one another. And the reality is is that everything we're looking for in the dating landscape of 5'9 and these traits, personality, physically, and everything we're looking for to complete me, at some point, Those things that you think will fulfill you, they will fail you and they will crush you. 
And it did so in our marriage. Those first few years were awful. We would fight all the time, right? Because we were only looking at ourselves. And we would do this when we fight. And some of you couples can relate to this. We would, I cannot believe you would ever say that. Right? We get in a, a conflict and it's like something arises and I'm like, we even apologize. Like, hey, I'm sorry, I forgive you. But it's like, but how could you ever even say that to begin with? How could you ever think that? Right? And because of that, we would fight like standing up. We would fight sitting down. We would fight crying. We would fight speaking very loudly. We would fight speaking very softly for hours because we couldn't understand, how could you not fulfill me? How could you fail me? The mission was supposed to be this, take a few years away from everybody else and focus on this, and yet this is not enough. And listen, you see that from the very beginning, that God has put Adam and Eve on, on a mission, be fruitful and multiply, keep dominion, cultivate this garden. He, he's sending them out together, face to face, yes, become one, but go out into the world and help one another complete the mission God has for you together. And so there is a purposeful partnership. It's not just about mutual comfort. Mutual comfort kills a marriage. Purposeful partnership can make a marriage thrive, and not just a marriage thrive, but a whole community thrive. And that's the way God set it up. He set up a helper, two people to come alongside one another in partnership. Second thing, as God creates marriage, as he designs it, he creates it as sacrificial oneness over solo success. We see that in verses 21 through 25. Look at those verses. It says this, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I love verse 23. Look at that verse, how he starts out. Adam, he says, at last. That all these other things have been created. The animals, there's some elephants. Like the deer, oh, they're kind of cute. At last. A woman, it makes me think of that song. At last. My love has come along, right? And it made Adam think of a song. He breaks into a song. Look at it. He says, at last, this is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. He breaks out the song and poetry. Why? Because a woman has shown up. Because his spouse has shown up. Listen, I don't know what kind of weddings you've been to. This is an amazing wedding. God officiates a wedding better than I could and any other pastor could, Right? It's this amazing union, this amazing oneness that comes together. But here's the reality. It's sacrificial oneness. Right, we see it in the text. Look at it with me. Even in the way Eve is formed, it cost Adam a rib, right? Like he, it cost him like part of his literal body to create this oneness. We see it in verse 24 that man has to leave his father and mother. Now, some of you, that doesn't seem like a sacrifice, 
Like, that's what I've been waiting for my whole life is to leave my father and mother. But in that day, in that culture, it was different. To leave your father and mother, that was your entire worth in your father and mother. That, that was who you were garnering approval for for your entire life. That was who even later in life, when you did grow older, that was who you're supposed to support and honor, provide for. And your worth was tied to your parents. And so when God sets it up this way, he says, hey, this is something of, of immense value. And I want you to, to leave that behind to connect to this person, to become one with this person. It's a sacrificial oneness. We see this in the New Testament in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How? He gave. He sacrificed himself for the church. That, that this oneness in the very creation of it, take the rib out. It's meant to model a lifetime. Take the, take the parents, leave the parents, go to this person. It's meant to model a lifetime of what Christ does for us. He gives to us. It's sacrificial oneness. And this is the reality from the beginning. This is the, the foundation for marriage. Jesus is asked about divorce in Mark 10. We just went through a whole series on the book of Mark, and we see in Mark 10, these Pharisees come up to Jesus, and they're trying to trap him. And the way they try to trap him is they ask him, hey, who can get divorced? What, what legal reasons can we get divorced for? And what I love about Jesus is he doesn't argue about divorce. He gets into the design of marriage in Genesis chapter 2. He quotes this passage about sacrificial oneness. And he says, hey, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one. God has joined this together. Let no man separate it. And you see that sacrificial oneness is foundational even for Jesus. We see that for Paul. The apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, he's talking about the roles in marriage and how, how a man really leads and how a woman does help and what that really looks like. And he talks about and he quotes this passage about sacrificial oneness. And as I thought about that, I thought, okay, why this? Like as we design marriage, God, the foundation of it all in the very beginning that Jesus himself quotes, that Paul quotes later on in the New Testament, why is sacrificial, sacrificial oneness the linchpin that holds everything together? Why this and not something else? Like, we don't see anything about love in here. Did you notice that? We don't see anything about how to fight well in this passage. Did you notice that? We don't see any practical tips like when we do premarital counseling we, can, we have to go to some other passages than Genesis 2. Why sacrificial oneness? And the reality is sacrificial oneness is what God mentions here as he designs marriage, as the linchpin that holds everything together, is because that's how all of creation works. All of creation is two becoming one. Uh, there's a guy named Joshua Ryan Butler who's now a pastor here in Phoenix. He, he's an author. He was in Portland before that. Uh, and I got to hear him speak in Phoenix. And, and he illustrated this with just creation. And the whole uh, topic was sexuality and homosexuality and marriage. And like the first 40 minutes, like he never got to any of those exact topics. He just set up oneness and how two complementary pairs come together to make one. And that's how all of creation works before we even get to marriage. And so I'm going to condense his 40-minute talk into two minutes. Here we go. He talked about how in creation you see two complementary pairs becoming one. That's how everything works. You see night and day. 
You see, night and day, night, day, different, but they come together to become one, right? And what happens when night and day come together? A sunset, a sunrise, something beautiful as two become one. Two who are different, night is different than day, but when they converge, when they mesh, it's beautiful as two become one. You see it in land and sea. As land and sea are different, but when they become one, they create something beautiful. They create a waterfall. They create beachfront property that we pay more for, right? They create oceans that are six hours away in San Diego that we, we drive to every summer for the bliss of it because land is meeting sea. Two different things become one. We see it in heaven and earth as the clouds meet a mountaintop, right? We hike for this reason. I can't think of any other reason to hike, right? And I, and I do. I, I hike. And every time I hike, halfway up, I think, why did I do this? Like my wife and I, investing in our marriage, we'll go on hikes. And halfway up, I'm like, why didn't we watch a movie? But, but why do we do it? To make it to the top. Because if we can summit this mountain, we can see heaven and earth colliding. Like we can sit up there and be like, wow. And not even say anything else, but wow. I mean, look, you can see everything here. You can see the clouds. Like we're way up high. You can see down below and you see heaven meeting earth. Two very different things. But when they converge, it's beautiful. It's one. We see it in male and female. Two very different things. Amen? A man, <laughs> a man who has trouble listening and, and is focused on his fantasy football team, like right now you're checking your scores. A man who's driven in his career and that can be a great thing, but a man. A, a woman who, who's taking care of the house and, and pursuing her dreams over here and, and reading her magazines and what she wants to do in life. And we see a man and a woman come together. Different becomes one. And listen, when that man who's checking his fantasy football scores and, and that woman, when they come together, it's a beautiful thing. It's like a sunset. It's like climbing a mountain. It's like oceanfront property. It's sacrificial oneness. This is the way all creation works. This is the way marriage works. That if we get this sacrificial oneness, I'm giving of myself to become one with you. It's a beautiful thing. It's a hard thing, but it's a glorious thing. It's a hard thing, but it's a possible thing. When we get that, love begins to make sense. When we get that fighting clean, begins to make sense. If we don't get this sacrificial oneness, if we don't get this convergence of two different people becoming unified, love, conflict, date nights, finances, sex, none of that makes sense, right? But if we get that we are one, that we are one spiritually, that we grow in Christ together, that if we are one physically, we do grow in intimacy and sex together, we're one financially, it's not my money, it's not your money. It's our money. We don't have separate bank accounts. We have one bank account because we are one. When we get this relationally, we become friends as one. 
If you get sacrificial oneness, it's the way all of creation works. If you get that in marriage, everything else works. If you don't, nothing else works. Here's what this kind of marriage brings about. Look at verse 25. It says, they were both naked and unashamed. Every guy's favorite verse. Okay? But it's not just physical, guys. Right? It's not just physical. Notice uh, in Genesis 3. Sin enters the equation. And remember in Genesis 3, sin enters in the equation. God asks, hey, where are you? And they show up, and what have they done? Are they still naked? No, they've sewn fig leaves on their bodies. And I never thought about this until studying this this week. God says something really interesting. He says, hey, who told you you were naked? And you start to realize they didn't realize they were naked, Right? It was just their, their norm, and it wasn't just a physical thing. Like, they didn't even know. Like, they didn't know to cover up until sin entered the equation. They were unashamed. It's not just physical. Naked and unashamed, that was their, their existence. They walked in life with complete freedom, and they didn't even know anything else until sin showed up. Here's the reality for all of us in this room. We know sin, and we know shame. We know when we're naked. We know when we're naked physically and spiritually and emotionally. We know when we're vulnerable. Right? It makes us nervous. It gives us anxiety because we're not perfect. And there's, there's parts of us we don't want people to see physically, spiritually, emotionally. There's parts of us we want to hide. And we want to sow those fig leaves. And that's all you and I have ever known. And can you just picture there was a time where they didn't know that. They were unashamed because marriage, as God designed it, that's what it produces. It produces a freedom and a fullness that's with God, that's facing each other, but also facing the world and the mission God has given you. And there's a fullness there and there's a freedom there. So much that God describes it, hey, it's naked and unashamed, physically, spiritually, and emotionally. You can lay before God authentic, authentic, um, authentic, transparent, as you are, loved unconditionally, fully known and fully loved by your spouse and by God. But here's what I know. Everybody wants naked and unashamed, but nobody wants the sacrifice that it takes to get there. Everybody wants oneness, but nobody likes what sacrificial oneness. I don't know that I like that. So I'm going to give you some things to do. I'm going to give you some homework, some things to work on, because marriage is hard, but it can be glorious, but we have to put in the, the work. Here's three things. The first thing is this study guide. Uh, we gave you this last week. If you didn't get one last week, you can grab one in the lobby. You can download an electronic copy online. Here, here's your homework. The second week... You can open it up if you haven't looked right now. The second week is love and marriage. It gives you this text. It gives you some other texts to read through. It gives you some statements to remember. It gives you questions to reflect on. And my challenge to you is to take this study guide this week and, and do, do it, go through it with your spouse. Like just set up one night, one morning, one coffee date, whatever the case may be. Put the kids uh, in front of the TV, whatever you have to do, and go through this together. Read where it says also read. Read those other passages. Investigate for yourself. Maybe you've thought like helper, submission as a woman, like you don't like that word. Just read the passages. 
Maybe you've thought, man, at, at what leadership look like, looks like in marriage. Maybe you, you feel intimidated about that, not sure what that actually is. Read the passages of Scripture. Reflect on these things together. Take 20 minutes to go through this together. The second thing, if you are married, go back this week and watch your wedding video. Now, if you don't have a wedding video because it was before those times, read your wedding vows, right? Go back, watch your wedding video, read your vows, and remind yourself what you committed to on that wedding day. Remind yourself what you said face-to-face, but what you also committed before family, friends, God, and everybody outward to the world. Remind yourself, look back at the words you said, the meaning behind those words. When we're in marriage counseling, and couples specifically are on the brink of divorce, what I always do is not start with, hey, tell me what's wrong. Hey, tell me about the conflict you're experiencing. I don't start with that. I say, they tell me all the things, like, hey, things are not going well. Things are kind of falling apart. Like, we're not sure how to, how to work this thing and how to do this. I just stop them and say, okay, how long have you been married? Five years, 10 years, three years, whatever the case may be. Hey, tell me about that. Tell me about your wedding. Where was it? Was it a church? Was it outside? How many people, was it like close and intimate or was it like a massive party? Like, tell me about your, your wedding. And they kind of, you know, they kind of look at each other like, I don't want to talk about that right now. I don't want to remember my wedding. I'm looking for a way out of this. And I just tell them, hey, remind me of your wedding. Who was there? What song did they sing? What words did you say? Hey, t- let's back up even further. How did you propose where were you? Were there flowers? Was there a video? Did you cry? Tell me about it. And like 30 minutes later, they're like, listen, man, we came to get this conflict sorted out. And you're all, all you're talking about is the wedding. And why do I do that? Because if you can remember why you committed and what you committed, it's a lot harder to think about separating that. If you can do that this week, go back, watch your wedding video read your wedding vows, that conflict drops a lot lower than that commitment that you made. That conflict, you get perspective on it in relation to the commitment that you made on that day. And so married couples, take some time this week to do that. Go through this study guide, watch your wedding video, talk about your wedding day, read your vows together. The last thing is don't look at each other look to God. Don't look at each other, look to God. Ephesians 5 talks about marriage as a mystery. And a lot of us, we hear mystery and we think, well, Tim, I can relate to that. Like, preach it. It's a mystery. Like, how are we supposed to do this thing? That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul says, hey, it's a mystery because marriage is not just about a man and a woman. It's about Jesus and the church. And so as we close this thing out, don't look at your spouse. Together, look to God, right? See, here's what I know. Throughout this sermon, there's been times as I've talked about all of these things that maybe you didn't nudge your spouse physically, but you wanted to, right? And you nudged them in your mind. You thought, hey, amen, she needs to hear this. You're writing it down, but not for you. For lunch, when you're going to be like, babe, just read this, memorize that. 
What's the podcast? Like, you've never listened to a podcast of our church before, but you're like, we're at phoenixbiblechurch.com slash sermons. How's it? iTunes, like Facebook Live. Like, where are all the places I can see this to show my husband, right? And the reality is I know this, right? Because as I studied this, I looked at my wife and not myself. And as you've heard this, you're looking at your spouse and not you. Here's what you do. Both of you don't look at each other. Both of you locked arms together, look to God. Because marriage isn't just designed by God, it puts God on display. It's meant to point you to God. It's meant to point you to the way he has led you. He gave himself up for you. The way he has loved you. He sent Jesus, the most valuable thing he had to offer, his only begotten son, to die for you. Not because you were lovely, but to make you lovely. Marriage points us to that relationship. Marriage is a shadow pointing us to the substance of Christ. And so as you go through this study guide, as you read your wedding vows, as you try to apply things from this sermon, don't look at each other. You will crush one another. You will fail one another. Look to God who fulfills you and can fulfill you collectively in your marriage. Now, I know not everybody in here is married. Some of you are single. And maybe you're thinking, okay, Tim, this is great for married people. What about me? Well, one, I would say, come back in a few weeks. We're going to take two sermons to talk about singleness and dating. But you don't just need to come back. You need to apply this as well. Listen, so many people experience pain in marriage because they never prepared for marriage. You get the opportunity. You get a seat right here to prepare for marriage. And so take these notes. Allow it to inform and affect who you look for in a spouse, a purposeful partnership, a sacrificial oneness. We're going to talk about next week uh, communication, the next week conflict. But it's a lot about who you marry. So single people, Take notes now. Pursue this now as God designed it. But not only that, marriage is hard, but it's possible. Marriage is hard, but it's glorious. It's like trying to grow grass in the desert. And married couples, I can speak for us as a married couple, we can't do this on our own. I I need some single people in our body. We're called the body of Christ. Different members coming together. We need your voice. We need your perspective. We need you in our community groups. And this week, as we talk about marriage, and all we think about is like we're married. We need your perspective, your prayers. Marriage is hard. Come alongside our, our families. Pray for them. Speak life into them. Encourage them. And let's all come together to see God's design for marriage happen. Because it's hard, but it's possible. And it's hard, but it can be glorious. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you for these men and women. I want to thank you for those that are married and probably have a lot of insecurities right now as they look at their marriage in light of the first marriage and your design for marriage and see how their marriage doesn't add up. That if they're honest, it's not a purposeful partnership. It is just about mutual comfort. 
that if they're honest, it's, it's not about sacrificial oneness. It is about solo success. It's about if, if I can win, and even as we leave here today, like how, who's the first person that's going to talk about this, and, and how am I going to respond, and how am I going to counter? And God, I just pray for a freedom to wash over every married couple in this room, to know that they are flawed, but you are faithful, that they would not just look to one another, they would look to you. And God, they would work together to grow in their marriages as you've designed. It's hard, but it's glorious. It's glorious. It's a gift that you designed. And so, God, I pray that our marriages would, would come out of here working towards that, doing the, the hard work, the, the tilling of the soil, the, the dating their spouse, that this week would set that in motion. And then, God, I do pray for our, our single people in the room. I pray that as some of them long to be married, they wouldn't just long for it and dream about it. They would prepare for it now. They would devote themselves to you. They would look to you. And not just across the aisle at somebody else who one day is going to bring fulfillment and completion to their lives because that's not going to happen. God, I pray for us as a church that we would have marriages that thrive, that point people to Jesus, that are on mission for Jesus, that bring glory to you and joy to others. Because if we can have marriages like that, we can have a church that changes our community and that changes our city, ultimately that changes the world. God, we pray for your help. In the name of Jesus.